Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. I'm going to call this section Paul's Friends and Enemies because he's going to mention a lot of people who ministered, he ministered with, and he's also going to mention some people who abandoned him also. Our context is this in the first eight verses of 2 Timothy 4. Paul said he was about to be poured out as a drink offering. He was about to be executed, actually, in his, uh, during his second imprisonment in Rome, assuming that there were two imprisonments. And then he tells Timothy to preach the word in season and out. And so now he's telling Timothy farewell. This is the last time he'll ever talk to Timothy. Probably He probably will never see him again. We start in verses 9 and 10. Paul tells Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, why did Paul want Timothy to come? He's, here are some options. He was lonely. This is Ellison's idea. And that's why he'd mentioned all those, in my opinion, that he'd left him in verse 10. He says Demas left him, deserted him, actually, and Crescens had gone to Galatia. Whether he deserted him, deserted him or just left, he was gone. Titus had gone to Dalmatia. There's nobody there with him in Rome anymore. He's lonely. Ellison says another reason maybe is that Paul had eye problems. Now, this is an extreme stretch. But Ellison cites 2 Corinthians 12, 7, where Paul said because of all the revelations he had, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. But that's assuming the thorn in the flesh is eye problems, and that takes a lot of intellectual gyrations to get to that. It's an extreme speculation. I don't believe it. So we'll leave that out. Here's another reason why he wanted Timothy to come, because he had things to tell him about, about the care of the churches. Now, that makes sense. He had some business to work out with Timothy, some instructions, some discipling, some mentoring. Another option he wanted to see, perhaps a reason he wanted to see Timothy was he wanted to commission Timothy to carry on Paul's work after Paul died, which is similar to the idea about teaching him how to carry on with the churches. So either because he was lonely for personal reasons or professional apostle reasons, he wanted Timothy to come see him soon. Now, whether Timothy actually did that, we don't know. I assume he did not. Verse 10, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Demas deserted Jesus, deserted Paul, but not necessarily Jesus. He may have just deserted Paul, as Ellison and John Gill suggests, and the possible reason why he may have done that was because Paul was in prison, about to be beheaded, and Demas didn't want to stick around for that unhappy event. He didn't want to be associated with that. He was scared he might be in trouble and because he was friends with Paul, and so he took off. Well, not very noble, is it? But it does not say he left the faith. Now, John Gill has an interesting theory that Demas later came back to Paul. Gill says that Demetrius is the long form of Demas, and we read in 3 John 1.12, which we assume was written after 2 Timothy, and 3 John 1.12 says this, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. This is John saying this. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Well, it doesn't say Demetrius went back to Paul. It just says he has a good testimony. We don't know that Demetrius is Demas, etc., etc. This is a wild theory. We'll just assume that Demas has left Paul. Being in love with the present world, he didn't want to go to the next world by being executed with Paul, perhaps. Adam Clark says this about Demas. Demas has received a little justice from interpreters and preachers in general. It is even fashionable to hunt him down. <laughs> Talk about bad press. He abandons Paul and then... Now he's everybody's watchword for treachery and lack of faithfulness. 
Now, that word world, Demas is in love with this present world. The word is actually aeon age, which, of course, stands for the Jewish age. And so Clark says that what this verse probably means, in his view, is that Demas went back to Judaism because it was the Jewish age. This present age is the Jewish age. That's a nice theory. I don't believe it. I believe he's just worldly. He just didn't, got, didn't, couldn't stand the heat anymore. Well, I tell you, the stuff that Christians had to suffer back then, I can understand why people might want to abandon ship. Paul never did, though. John Gill says that if Demas didn't backslide, then it's true that Demas only loved his life more than God. In other words, he left Paul alone in Rome because he didn't want to get caught and killed. So Gill says it wasn't the world, the flesh, and the devil that got him, just it was self-preservation that got him. Well, I don't know. Demas is probably from Thessalonica. We read in Colossians 4:14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So here we have Demas in Colossae. And in Philemon 1.24, Paul signs off by saying, and so do Mark, I send my greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Demas was with Paul when Philemon was written during his first imprisonment, most probably. And so Demas was with him there. And Colossians was also a prison epistle. Luke greeted the Colossians along with Demas. So Demas was there. But Demas has deserted Paul here in Second Timothy, which is proof, according to Adam Clark, that Second Timothy was written after Colossians and Philemon and that there was a second imprisonment and Paul was in prison the second time. Now, Titus went to Dalmatia. Now, Dalmatia is the Roman province that's north of Macedonia. You see Greece, you go north of Greece, the northern part of Greece, modern Greece at least, is Macedonia. If you're on the west coast of Greece, going up the west coast on the Adriatic Sea, you go up a little bit north and you're in what they used to call a Paris. Today is called Albania. You go north of Albania and you're in the, into Croatia and, and those countries there, former Yugoslavia. The ancient Romans call that area Illyricum. It's right on the northeast corner of the Adriatic Sea, right as you curve around, go under Hungary, I think it is, go under Austria, go to the east, and you're in Italy. And so Titus went to Dalmatia. Now, the movements of Titus are kind of fuzzy. This is the last we hear of Titus in the New Testament. So Jameson Fawcett and Brown says he must have left Crete and then gone to Dalmatia. As it, what, and this is what Paul is talking about here. Titus, I've, I've sent to Dalmatia because we know that Titus was the apostle to Crete as we know as we read the letter in Titus. So let's read Jameson Fawcett and Brown's reconstruction of events. Paul had written to him, to Titus, to come to him in the winter to Nicopolis. This is in Titus 3.12. Now Nicopolis is in Epirus, which is present-day Albania, north of Macedonia, on the Adriatic coast. Paul had written to Titus to come to him in the winter to Nicopolis, and he intended in the spring to preach the gospel in the adjoining province of Dalmatia. Dalmatia is just to the north of Epirus, where Nicopolis was. Titus seems to have gone thither to carry out the apostles' intentions. So Titus goes from Crete to Dalmatia to meet Paul, but unfortunately Paul got arrested. The execution of this apostles of the apostles' intention was interrupted by Paul's arrest. Whenever, whether he went of his own accord, as is likely, or sent by Paul, which the expression "is departed" hardly accords with, cannot be positively decided. Well, what he's saying is that we're not sure whether Paul sent Titus to Dalmatia, to Dalmatia or just that Titus went to Dalmatia. But this was after Titus was in Crete. Remember, this letter is written. To at the very end of the apostolic letters, about 66 maybe, somewhere around there, depending on when you think Paul was executed. 
Crescens has gone to Galatia. Why? Paul doesn't say Crescens deserted him. He just said he went. He could have just gone to evangelize. Or he could have deserted Paul just like Demas did. Paul's not clear here. He went to Galatia, of course. That's the tip, That's the Galatia where Lystra and Derby was and Pisidia and Antioch, right in the middle of Asia Minor, where the Paul and Barnabas went on the first journey and where Paul went, Paul and Silas went on the second journey and picked up Timothy and Lystra right there in the middle of Asia Minor. Crescens was also from there. We don't know anything about him. Why does Paul say, Timothy, I want you to come see me soon? Because winter was coming on and traveling was not safe, John Gill speculates. Or because Paul's death was imminent. You need to come soon, Timothy. I might not live very long and you won't get to see me. Verse 11, 2 Timothy 4. Paul continues, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me from ministry. Now, Luke, of course, is the famous Gentile physician. He's the only non-Jewish New Testament author. And, of course, he wrote the book of Luke and Acts. And he accompanied Paul on much of Paul's second and third journey. Notice that Paul tells, mentions Luke, and then he says, get Mark. Now, that, that, of course, is John Mark, the same John Mark who wrote the book of Mark, the same Mark whose mother lived in Jerusalem, where the early church used to meet. Last Supper may have even been held there. Some people speculate. He was the famous Mark who quit Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. They got right to the coast of southern Asia Minor there, and I think it was, where was that? Somewhere in Perga, I think it was, in Pamphylia. And off Mark goes. And and Paul was so upset with Mark for doing that that he refused to let Mark go on the second journey. And Barnabas says, okay, I'll go to Cyprus. I'll take John Mark with me. You know the story. Well, listen to here. After that falling out, and this is, that was, of course, the first journey was approximately 48 or 49 A.D. Now we're in 64, approximately A.D. So we're talking about 15 years later. And Paul is perfectly happy with Mark. He says, Mark is very useful to me for ministry. So Barnabas' cousin Mark is the son of Barnabas' sister. Barnabas' cousin Mark is very useful to Paul. Now Mark could have been in Ephesus where Timothy was when Paul wrote this letter. He could have, or he could have been somewhere along the way from Ephesus to Rome when, when Timothy got the letter. I don't know, but Paul wants to see Mark. So Mark was replaced basically by Timothy as his right-hand man, as his young disciple as his son if you will and let's read what jameson fawcett brown says about that mark had been under a cloud for having forsaken paul at a critical moment in his missionary tour with barnabas that's the first journey timothy had subsequently occupied the same post in relation to paul as mark once held hence paul appropriately here wipes out the past censure by high praise of mark and guards against timothy's making self-complacent comparison between himself and mark as though he were superior to the latter. Well, I don't know if Timothy would have been tempted to do that. That's not very sporting of him. I, but in just in case, this would be a guard against that because Paul has rehabilitated Mark in everybody's eyes, in Timothy and whoever else read this letter. We go now to verse 12, 2 Timothy 4. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now, Tychicus is Paul's trusted messenger at the end of the third journey on the way back to Jerusalem with the poor collection for the Jerusalem saints. In Acts 24, we read a bunch of people who were accompanying Paul. I won't read them. Well, let me read them to you real quick. Sopater the Berean, Aristarchus of Secundus the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So Timothy was on the same boat with Tychicus, and so he knew him. 
And he was on, Paul says, I've sent him to Ephesus, maybe to tell Timothy to meet him there, because he's on, because Timothy's in Ephesus now. Colossians 4, 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Paul tells the Colossians he is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Of course, Colossae was about 100 miles inland or so from Ephesus, inland in the province of, in Asia Minor. And so Tychicus might have been ministering to the Colossians. Ephesians 6.21, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. So Tychicus is, is told, is telling the Ephesians, where because Tychicus was probably from Ephesus, all about what Paul has been doing. And then Titus 3.12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. This, of course, is during the fourth journey after the first imprisonment. Paul says, I've decided to win the spend the winter there in Nicopolis, and I want Tychicus to come to Nicopolis, which he never did, but he did go to Dalmatia, north of Nicopolis later. So basically, you see, Tychicus is a traveler. He's well-respected. He's a messenger bearer. I would say he's an apostolic worker. Ellison says that Tychicus is probably the bearer of Second Timothy to Timothy. He carried the letter to Timothy, because Timothy's in Ephesus, and Paul says here, I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And so the implication is that Paul sent the letter of Second Timothy with Tychicus to Ephesus. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown admits the possibility of that, but thinks probably not, so we don't know. Now, John Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown state very positively that possibly that Tychicus was sent by Paul to replace Timothy at Ephesus, as Timothy left Ephesus to go to Rome. In other words, Paul was trying to do a switch. He says, all right, I got Tychicus here. I'm going to send him to Ephesus. He'll take care of your duties there in Ephesus. Timothy, I want Timothy to come talk to me, either because I'm lonely or because I want to instruct him more about the church. Second Timothy 4.13, Paul continues talking to Timothy. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now that word cloak, there's some options on how you can translate the Greek word. Here's option one by Ellison, a large, heavy garment which was used as a coat and sleeping bag during the winter. And if you're in a Roman prison, that would be something nice to have. Some people translate it as bag. Adam Clark does. When you come, bring the bag that I left with Carpus at Troas. And that bag, Paul would carry his clothes in, his books, his traveling necessities. John Gill translates it as desk. When you come, bring the desk that I left with Carpus at Troas, in which books could be placed. I don't know the Greek that well. I'm just giving you those options. It doesn't really matter. But it's interesting that Paul had left something at Troas. Gill says he probably left it in a, in a hurried departure, and he wanted that cloak because winter was coming on. It's cold in those Roman prisons. Now, Troas, you know, is the area of northwestern Asia Minor, where the city of Troy was on all the ancient maps is readily identifiable. It's right next to the entrance to the Hellespont, or the, as we say in modern terms, the Dardanelles. As you go up out of the Aegean Sea into the Dardanelles, through the Dardanelles into the Sea of Marmara, though it used to be called the Propontis, and then you go through the Bosphorus Straits and you're into the Black Sea, that famous passage from Asia to Europe between the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea, which figured so prominently in Greek history because that's how the Greeks got their grain from the southern Russian area. Oh, I shouldn't say Russian. They weren't Russian then, but this, I don't know what you call it. The, up there on the northern coast of the Black Sea, I guess, where all the wheat was, they would carry it down there. And Troy was right there at the entrance there. and that So that was an important city, and it's, it's, it's a port city. And that's where Paul had his Macedonian vision. Now, Paul also visited the Macedonian vision was at the end of these, was in the middle of, I should say, the second journey. 
The second journey was, say, 51 to 53 A.D. You recall Paul had a dream. A man said, come on over here and Matt to Macedonia and help us. And Paul took that to say, we're not going to go into Bithynia. We're not going to go east. We're going to go west and go on over into Europe. But that was at least 10 years, more than 10 years before. So to think that Paul would have left his cloak in Troas and said, how about bring it? I don't think so. But Paul also visited Troas at the end of the third journey. In Acts 20, verses 5 and 6, this is on the way back to Jerusalem. And this is when Eutychus fell out the window. And Paul arrived there on Sunday. Well, that was still about five years or so before Second Timothy. So did Paul leave a cloak there for five years? He's got a mind on it for five years. And he says, I haven't got it yet. But Timothy, somehow you get a hold of that thing and bring it. And why would Timothy in Ephesus have a cloak that Paul left in Troas? Unless Timothy was to go up north to Troas and then go around, take the land route over to Rome. Well, that could be. Could it, could, Timothy could pick it up on the way. I don't know. But it is kind of interesting, this little detail. Paul needed books and the parchments because he evangelized a lot. And he was a very active guy, but he also took time to study. I mean, after all, the man knew the Old Testament backwards and forward, as well as rabbinic law. He also knew Greek literature. He was a real smart guy. He was a learned guy, despite the fact that he was also working. He could work with his hands and make tents, and he could also evangelize and set up churches. Parchment, of course, is writing material made out of animal skins. Very valuable in the ancient world. Very expensive. What these books are that Paul wanted, Ellison speculates they could be referred to letters or legal documents, whatever that means. Adam Clark says that Paul, facing martyrdom, had no use for them now. But he still wanted them because he wanted to bequeath them to the faithful to preserve them for the use of the church. Interesting idea. And another interesting little fact of history, parchment is, the name for parchment is taken from Pergamum, that famous city of the seven cities of Revelation. Parchment was invented there. I looked that up in Britannica because I had trouble believing that when I read it in Ellison. But it's true. That's where parchment was invented at Pergamum. These books that Paul wanted to for Timothy to bring from Troas may have included some of his inspired writings, some scripture in those books. Or maybe it could be some parchment of Old Testament books, which is also scripture. We don't know. Those are just speculations. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Now, Paul says the Lord will repay Alexander the coppersmith. Now, is that imprecatory? Is Paul saying, yes, sir, I curse him. The Lord will repay him according to his death. Well, Clark and Jameson Foss and Brown say, no, Paul's just stating a matter of fact, not a wish, but a fact. God's going to repay him for that. And I tend to think that's what Paul was doing. He could have been saying, well, now look, Timothy, look what Alexander the coppersmith did. He did a great harm to me and to the church. And this is what happens to people who do that. They're going to get repaid by the Lord. And so you don't need to worry about Alexander the coppersmith. You don't need to take any vengeful type actions against him in case you ever see him. Could be. But at any rate, whether it's imprecatory or whether it's declaratory, this statement that God will repay or the Lord will repay Alexander according to his deeds, whichever way it is, Paul is not acting from private revenge or resentment. He had pure zeal for the honor and glory of God, as John Gill says, and I thoroughly believe that. Paul didn't have a revengeful bone in his body. He's just trying to establish the gospel. And he's just stating a fact here. You reap what you sow. Alexander the coppersmith did a lot of harm to the kingdom. He's going to pay for it. And people that jump on the church and persecute the church, they will pay. And it's not our job to make them pay. It's up to God to make them pay. 
Paul, unlike modern Christians, knew that Jesus was a God of justice as well as love. Ellison's got an interesting comment here. He says humans break themselves on God's standards. In other words, people go shake their fist against God. That, that's not a good career move. This Alexander the coppersmith who did this stuff to Paul, we don't, we're not sure who he was because Alexander is a common name. Here are some options. There was the Alexander involved in the Ephesian riot, remember, on the third journey when Paul was in Ephesus for three years. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander. This is in verse 33 of Acts 19. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. And I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but you remember there was a big to-do there as Paul is accused of depriving the locals of their idol-making income with silver statues of Artemis, or Diana of the Ephesians, as they called, called her. Or that could be the Alexander that they're talking that Paul is talking about here that did him a lot of harm there, got him in trouble with the Ephesian mob. Gill affirms that, Clark affirms that. But it also could be the Alexander who, along with Hymenaeus, said the resurrection had already occurred, thus denying the future resurrection of the saints. 1 Timothy 1.20 Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan. Ooh, delivered to Satan. So that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Or it could be some other unknown Alexander we don't know about. I tend to think it's the Hymenaeus and Alexander one. Gill and Clark disagree. They say that it's the one, the Alexander at Ephesus. Jameson Fawcett Brown says maybe. Well, of course, nobody knows. But I guarantee you, Hymenaeus and Alexander cause Paul a lot of grief if they're like the modern-day hyperpreterist who cause me a lot of grief. So I don't know. Why is Alexander's trade mentioned? John Gill says it's to show that he, Alexander is an illiterate worker and not equipped to teach. Ooh, that would be a little nasty of Paul to say, he's just a coppersmith, he can't teach anything. Well, I mean, somebody could say the same thing about Paul. He's just a tent maker, he can't teach. No, I don't think John Gill's right about that. Adam Clark says that rabbis often attach names of trades to their name, to their names. That's just a way of identifying him. Paul says in verse 15, Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And how did he do that? He, he probably traveled from place to place opposing the gospel of Paul. They probably weren't in the same place. He probably didn't have the guts to oppose Paul to his face, but his, he was probably traveling around poisoning the churches after Paul left from teaching those churches. Verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. All right, now, what's his first defense where no one came to stand by Paul? Well, Roman legal procedure had a preliminary hearing before a trial, according to Ellison. So this would be his first defense during his second imprisonment, not his first. This would explain why Timothy was not there, because Paul says all deserted him. We know Timothy was there during his first imprisonment. We know that because in the prison epistles, Philippians and Colossians, or let's just say Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Christ Jesus, were in Philippi. Paul starts out the letter in the greetings, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy. So when Paul is talking about his first defense, he's not talking about his first imprisonment. He's talking about the first defense during his second imprisonment. Now, this is what Barnes says about this. This evidently refers to some trial which he had had before the Roman emperor. He speaks of a first trial of this kind, but whether it was on some former occasion and he had been released and permitted again to go abroad, or whether it was a trial which he had already had during his second imprisonment, it is not easy to determine. The former is the most natural supposition, namely that he had been released 
gone abroad and then come back again. The former is the most natural supposition, for if he had had a trial during his present imprisonment, it is difficult to see why he was still held as a prisoner. In other words, I guess Barnes is assuming that Paul would have been found innocent, so why is he back in jail again? At any rate, Paul is alone at his first defense, and also now, and whatever his second defense is going to be as he waits for trial, there's nobody there. They've all deserted him. Now, here's some speculations from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown about what some of these charges might have been that Paul had to defend himself against. Now, I'm going to go through Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's speculation with this caveat. I'm talking about all. I'm talking about the first and second defenses of Paul during the second imprisonment, or the first defense at the second imprisonment. The first imprisonment, if you recall, was because Paul had been sent to Rome because he had allegedly started a riot in Jerusalem, and the Roman authorities, when they wouldn't set Paul free, Paul finally said, look, I'm tired of this. I appeal to Rome. He goes to Rome. That was the first imprisonment. He's gotten out because he was obviously innocent of starting a, a riot in Rome, and now he's come back and he's gotten in prison again. Now, in the first defense... Of this second, during the second imprisonment, he must have been set free, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The Christians were accused of causing the conflagration in Rome. Paul was probably accused of that. And then a persecution started in AD 64. The Christians were accused of starting the conflagration. And if Paul had been a prisoner then for the other charge of starting a riot in Jerusalem, but if he had been a prison when all the Christians were accused of starting the fire, he would have been toast. This is Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's idea. Not only that, if he had been put to death at the end of the in 64 at when the Christians were persecuted by being blamed for that fire, he would not have been beheaded, as tradition has it, but he would have been burnt to death because that's the mode by which the Christians were executed. But Paul was not burnt to death, according to Eusebius. In tradition, he was finally beheaded, not burnt. So his first hearing in this second imprisonment seems to have been on a charge of complicity in the Roman fire. His absence from Rome may have been the ground of his acquittal on that charge. And then he's brought back, condemned again, on the charge of introducing a new and unlawful religion into Rome. And that's probably why they got him. That's interesting speculation. That makes seems perfectly reasonable to me. Now, Paul is bemoaning the fact that everybody has deserted him. All deserted me. Paul's followers became fearful because of his arrest, Ellison says. Paul's already mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 15 of 2 Timothy. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. This is not this is not Philetus and Hymenaeus, the, the heretics who said the resurrection had already come. These are just Orthodox Christians, I assume, who just left him. They couldn't stand. They don't want to be associated with some somebody that's about to be capitally executed. Now, Paul talks about all these people who deserted him and how may it not be charged against them. Now, he's already said, Alexander the coppersmith, he, the Lord's going to repay him according to this, his deeds. And some people even think that's an imprecation on the part of Paul. But here he's very gentle. May it not be charged against them for the people who deserted Paul. Why is that? Well, those are people who just lost their courage. There's, those are not heretics who are going around trashing the gospel and destroying Paul's gospel. So there's a difference. He treats these people much more lenient. It's very similar to Jesus on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them. How about the martyred Stephen, Acts 7:60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So Paul was very gracious about the people who deserted him. Verses 17 through 18 in 2 Timothy 4 reads like this, 
Paul says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, The Lord stood by me. He's probably referring to the fact that his human companions did not stand by him. They deserted him, as he said in the previous verse. But the Lord stood by me. And that's a great application here. All your friends leave you. God's never going to leave you. What did, it, what did the book of Hebrews say? Chapter 11, I think it is. I will never leave you. He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. The Lord stood by Paul. Jesus' disciples abandoned him. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? They all ran like a bunch of scared jackrabbits. I'll never betray you, Jesus. Peter tells Jesus at the Lord's Supper, and Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, before this night, so before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. So... It's easy to get scared, and I'm, I'm not putting myself... I probably would have run, too, to be honest with you. I don't have that much courage. I probably would have run, too. But anyway, the Lord stood by Paul and strengthened Paul. Now, you're going to do the stuff Paul did. You're going to need strength. Look at all the times that Paul mentioned strength. I've got five times in one, two, three, four, five of his letters in Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being inner power, inner strength, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And of course, that means all things that God wants him to do. Doesn't mean he can go around and lift up a 500-pound weight. Colossians 1.11, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. God's power is your power for all endurance and patience or with joy. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. little mini Bible study there on strength. By golly, we need it. Everybody needs it. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Well, how did Paul proclaim the gospel while he was in prison? Well, he could have just preached to whoever was around, the jailers, the praetorian guard. It could have been the epistles he wrote while in prison, the epistles that we're studying right now. That's fully proclaiming the gospel that Gentiles might hear it. I'm a Gentile, and I'm hearing the gospel in his letters. That's John Gill's idea. Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that the gospel was proclaimed when Paul was defending himself in the Roman court system, and that's, in my opinion, is what Paul is referring to here, although we don't know. Paul says, I was rescued. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. In other words, because the Lord stood by me, strengthened me because of that, therefore, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. When was Paul delivered from the lion's mouth? He was in jail. Doesn't sound like he was delivered from the lion's mouth, doesn't it? Well, this probably refers to his deliverance from Nero in his first offense when he was probably accused of starting the fire. His first offense during his second imprisonment. Now, here's some options as to who he was delivered from. The first is deliverance from Nero, as Adam Clark says. And Adam Barnes says this is the most common interpretation. In fact, I think that's probably true. Other people have speculated deliverance from unbelievers in general, deliverance from death. Deliverance from Satan, deliverance from Helios, Nero's governor, while Nero was in Greece. The lion's mouth could be he was just delivered from being thrown into to the lion's den, literally, because that's what happened to Christian prisoners back then. He's saying, "Oh, I could have gotten convicted by Nero and thrown in thrown into the lion's lion's den, but I didn't. I'm in jail, but I didn't end up in the in gladiatorial combat with a lion somewhere in the amphitheater." That was Adam Barnes's idea. He says some think it might be literal. The words might be proverbial. It's probably Nero. He was delivered from Nero from the lion's mouth. Nero sounds like a lion. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. 
including those false accusations that put him in prison, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul knew that he was going to die soon. Probably the, the Romans were getting ready to execute him, but that didn't worry him. He says, I'm going to be escorted safely. Well, I'm going to be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. Not a hair of his head is going to be lost. To him be the glory forever and ever. I mean, he didn't sound like somebody's too worried about dying, does he? And I left this, I meant to say this, when he, Paul said that through him the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He mentions the Gentiles specifically as far as the people who are receiving his message. Remember, Paul was especially called to minister to the Gentiles. And I've got about 10, 11 verses here where Paul does it. I'm not going to read them to you, but mostly in Acts. Well, it's Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, First Timothy. He mentions it all the time. I'm preaching to the Gentiles. Now, here's some options as to how the Gentiles might hear, given the fact that Paul was in prison. Well, people in Caesar's palace could have heard. In the Roman courts, they could have heard it. In the judicial system, all over Rome, the gossip might have spread it around. This Paul, what's he talking about? All over the Roman Empire, because Paul's proclamation was in the capital city, and then it would likely spread all over the empire. Because Paul was not actually a small fry, Barney Fife-type prisoner. I mean, he was a big shot. He was well-known all over the Roman Empire by now. But however, the Gentiles heard the gospel. They're still hearing the gospel. More Gentiles hearing the gospel than Jews. Unfortunately, the Jews are still a little bit slow in coming into the kingdom. I just saw the government of Israel today was upset because God TV from the UK tried to put some evangelistic stuff in Israel about Jesus, and the government didn't like it. And they're now threatening to pull their license. Well, one day, Romans 11, they're going to come back in. They're going to be grafted back into the olive branch. I believe individually, one by one, hopefully in great numbers. I don't know how many numbers it will be, but the more the merrier. When Paul says to him, be the glory forever and ever, that just shows he just likes to break into doxologies of praise at any time. Amen. So be it. Whenever. We go to verse 19, our last verse in, well, no, it's not either. I'm sorry. Getting close to the end, verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Nesiphorus. Prisca and Aquila, of course, are Paul's famous husband and wife companions. They made tents together with Priscilla. He made tents together with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. They originally came from Rome and went to Corinth, where Paul met them on the second journey at the establishment of the Corinthian church. And then he left Corinth with Priscilla and Quill and went back to Ephesus. We read that in Acts 18, verses 18 and 19. After staying for some time in Corinth, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He's heading back after the second journey. He shaved his head at Sincrea, that's the Corinthian port city, because of a vow he had taken. But see, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, he left Corinth, went to Sincrea, the port city of Corinth. In verse 19, when they reached Ephesus, he left them there. And then he heads back at the end of second journey back to Antioch. So now we see that Priscilla and Aquila have left Rome, gone to Corinth, gone to Ephesus. And in Romans 16:3, Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila. So it sounds like they went from Ephesus back to Rome again. This is about 55 or 56, probably after that famous famine. But now in Timothy, he's writing to them in, he's, he's telling Timothy in Ephesus to greet Pris Prisca and Aquila. So apparently they've gone back from Rome to Ephesus. So these guys got around. Rome to Corinth to Ephesus to Rome back to Ephesus, which is kind of interesting. Now, Ellison mentions that it's highly unusual for the wife to be mentioned first. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Oh, do feminists love this? Ellison, I don't know if he's a feminist or not. He says it's highly unusual for the wife to be mentioned first. 
Here's some options as to why. She could have been of Roman nobility, and we're going to let the nobles go first. She married down, in other words, married a non-Roman, maybe. Ellison also says she wore the pants in the family. Well, actually, he didn't say that. He, he phrased it like this. She may have had the stronger personality. In other words, her husband, Aquila, might have been a wimp. And feminists love to quote this first to say, See, men shouldn't be leaders in the family. Sometimes the women need to lead in the family. Well, first of all, that's hogwash. Men should be the leaders. Unfortunately, often they're not. They need to be men. They don't need to be ashamed of being men. All this feminist horse crap that you hear all the time, toxic masculinity, patriarchy, as if it's some kind of a sin, some kind of a horrible, oppressive thing. Submission is the subjection of your self to a husband who's going to beat you to death and kick you in the teeth and all this stuff. And so they love to quote this fact that Prisca, who's the same as Priscilla, by the way, the wife is mentioned before the husband. Well, I can put an end to that right now. All you got to do is go to Acts 18.2 and 1 Corinthians 16.19, and you will see that Aquila is mentioned before Priscilla. So does the order of the names prove there that the husband is the leader, and he's the one doing the dominating? Acts 18.2, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So Aquila comes before Priscilla. 1 Corinthians 16.9, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila is mentioned first together with the church in their house. Feminism is bunk. Onesiphorus, he mentions him too. Now, this guy, Onesiphorus, he lived in Ephesus. He'd been kind to Paul in Rome. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me as was not ashamed of my chains. Now, Paul mentions the household of Onesiphorus, and this indicates, according to some people like Adam Clark, that Onesiphorus' family was probably dead because he would have just said, remember Onesiphorus, not remember the household of Onesiphorus if Onesiphorus were still alive. The Catholics take that and say, see there, Paul is talking about praying for somebody that's dead because, and it doesn't really sound like praying to me, but where, where this is first mentioned in chapter 1 of Second Timothy, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Somehow that's praying. I can't remember how the Catholics say that's praying for Onesiphorus even though he's dead. Well, that's a stretch. And anyway, Jameson Fawcett Brown say just the reason he said the household is because Onesiphorus was absent in Ephesus at the time. That's a tempest in a teapot, folks. Second Timothy 4.20. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Now, I don't know when this happened. I looked in several commentaries. And I suppose that could have been during the so-called fourth missionary journey where we don't know exactly where Paul went and when. And so he's telling Timothy where everybody is. Erastus is at Corinth and Trophus was sick at Miletus. Now this Erastus at Corinth is an interesting guy. Paul writes in AD 55 or 56 to the Romans and he says, Gaius, who was host to me into the whole church, that's in Corinth, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, that's the city treasurer of Corinth, and our brother Quartus greets you. The city treasurer, that's a Greek word that's hard to translate. It's a city official of some sort. I, I think that's the NIV. No, it's not the NIV. I don't know which translations. This is the ESV. Calls Erastus the city treasurer. Now, in Acts 19.22, this is when Paul is at Ephesus, at Ephesus at the end of the third journey, getting ready to go to Corinth to pick up some money to take back to Jerusalem for the poor saints. Before he did that, he sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. We don't know exactly where Timothy and Erastus went, but obviously he traveled with Timothy. Now, the question it remains, is this the same Erastus 
that remained at Corinth that Paul sent into Macedonia and the same Erastus that Paul mentions as being in Corinth as the city treasurer. Wikipedia says they're generally taken to be the same person, and I think they probably are. Jameson Foster Brown says it's hard to see how a, a city official like that could leave to go on a mission trip. <laughs> He's traveling around with Timothy when he was a city official. Well, maybe he was an ex-city official. Maybe he retired. I'm going to assume it's the same person. Now, having said that, here's the interesting thing from an archaeological standpoint. This is from Wikipedia. Quote, in 1929, an inscription mentioning an Erastus was found near a paved area northeast of the theater of Corinth. It has been dated to the mid-first century and reads, Erastus in return for his idolship, that's a Greek, a Greek, or actually it might be a Roman office, I should say, a Roman official. Erastus in return for his idolship paved it at his own expense. Some New Testament scholars have identified this ideal, Erastus, with the Erastus mentioned in the Epistle to the Romans, but this is disputed by others. Of course, all these things are disputed, but it could be the same guy. Now, why was Trophimus left ill at Miletus? Now, of course, cessationists say that healing back then with apostles was different than healing today because the apostles could heal at will, and because, and and, and I use this verse against an, an, a cessationist one time, I said, well, if that's true, why did Paul leave Trophimus unhealed? The cessationist was trying to say that people today who claim to have the charismatic gift of healing can't heal at will, and therefore they don't have the charismatic gift of healing, because a true charismatic gift of healing would be an apostolic gift where people are healed instantly. Boom! Pesto, presto. Well, Paul left Trophimus unhealed. Well, Ellison says, here's some options as to why Trophimus was not healed. Ellison says, option one, Paul only healed in unevangelized areas where signs and wonders were necessary for conversions. That, I'm trying to maintain some equilibrium here and some equanimity. Why are signs and wonders not necessary in evangelized areas? There's always unsaved people in evangelized areas that would do good to see some miracles. The first time I ever saw a miracle, I was in the Bible Belt in the South. The place had been evangelized like crazy. But I want to tell you something. I don't care if it's the Bible Belt. It still needs evangelism. And we still need miracles and we still need conversions. Anyway, I don't like that option. Could be that Paul didn't heal Trophimus because he didn't have enough faith. Really? The Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith? That sounds like the faith message. Ellison denies that. That does sound like name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, scream it and redeem it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, people. Here's another option. If God healed instantly all the time, we would walk by sight, not by faith. Now, I think that's a lot of truth, too, because I tell you, you get sick, man, it, it stretches your faith. Oh, God, please heal me. And it's real hard when you're sick to hold on to Jesus and say, please heal me, God. I try to pray for healing before I get sick. Or it could be, Ellison said, Trophimus was experiencing temporal punishment for some sin. Well, I don't, I don't think that God would do that to Trophimus to make him sick. I mean, he could. Happened to me. I got herpingina because I... Decided I didn't want to marry my current wife. I forgot how long we've been married. It's been forever, over 30 years. And I was thinking about abandoning ship. And then I got herpingitis. My mouth broke up with this horrible disease. You look at a picture of it on the internet, it'll make your hair curl. And I was hallucinating, 105 temperature, sweating at night. My clothes were soaked in sweat. And she fed me some yogurt, wiped the sweat off of me. And I thought, you know... Getting married might be a good idea. If I ever get sick when I'm married, she'd be there to take care of me. <laughs> so I believe that God let, either he allowed it or put it, I said, let's just say this to be safe. He allowed that herpingitis to get on me to show me something. I believe that, but I don't believe that's typical. I believe that's unusual. 
It could be that Trophimus was being tested, that he might mature spiritually. Okay, God tests us a lot of times. James and Fawcett and Brown and Clark say what I say. Paul didn't have the power of healing at will, like the cessationists say, but only as the Lord allowed him. That cessationist, when I brought this verse up to him, he said, well, this is in the 60s, and this was getting closer to the time where the canon closed. And you can just see as you get closer and closer to the closing of the canon, the miracles start shrinking and becoming less and less. Nonsense. Interesting, but total nonsense. Here's some other possible places where Paul did not heal. There's a thorn in the flesh, which wasn't taken away from it. That's not a good example, really, because it's so hard to know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. Not necessarily a sickness. It says a messenger of Satan. Sounds like a apostate heretic to me. And then in Philippians 2.25, Epaphroditus, the Philippian, Paul's fellow worker and fellow soldier, been longing for the Philippians. Indeed, he was ill near to death. God had mercy on him. All I can say about that is, yeah, he was ill and near to death, but he did get healed, didn't he? Maybe Paul healed him by praying for him. I don't know. He almost died. But it wasn't automatic like a genie in the bottle, let's put it this way. He had to go through that horrible testing time as you watch somebody and wonder whether they're going to pull out of it or not. Now, this Trophimus who was left at Miletus, I don't know who he was. This is still in that fourth missionary period, but I'm not, nobody really knows where Paul went. Miletus is that seaport in Western Asia Minor, just south of Ephesus on the coast there. Now, in fact, this verse is used to argue against the one imprisonment view. This verse is used to argue for the two imprisonment view because Paul says Erastus remained in Corinth. Well, on, on the one imprisonment view, the first three journeys in Acts, when did that happen? When did Paul leave Trophimus at Miletus? When did Paul leave Erastus at Corinth? Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This verse is irreconcilable with the imprisonment from which he writes, meaning the first, the first imprisonment. For he did not pass by Corinth or Miletus on his way to Rome when about to be in prison for the first time. So that means Second Timothy must have been written during a second imprisonment. I mentioned Erastus before. Let me say something else about him. John Gale gives the probable course of his travels. He went from Corinth with Timothy into Macedonia. We know this from Acts 19.22. This is the end of the third journey. Paul's in Ephesus. And having sent into Macedonia, this is from Ephesus, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he, Paul, himself stayed in Asia for a while. And then Erastus probably went from Macedonia, which is basically Philippi, Thessalonica, back down to Corinth where he stayed in his hometown of Corinth. Well, that makes sense. Now, I told you nobody knew where Paul traveled after the third journey. Let me give you some different ideas, one from Gill and one from Clark. Here's Gill, quote, This man, Trophimus, went with the apostle into Asia and from thence to Jerusalem and came along with him in his voyage to Rome, but falling sick, by the way, was left in Miletus. Well, Gill says that happened on the first journey. I didn't realize Paul went by Miletus on the first journey. Well, that's what Gill says. Adam Clark says, It appears that Paul went from Macedonia to Corinth, where he left Erastus. We just talked about that. From Corinth, he proceeded to Troas, where he lodged with Carpus. From Troas, he went to Ephesus, where he visited Timothy. From Ephesus, he went to Miletus, where he left Trophimus sick. And having embarked at Miletus, he went by sea to Rome. This, of course, is assuming his fourth missionary journey. When he was out between imprisonments, he wandered around and went back to Rome, where he was imprisoned the second time. I just mentioned that to you to show that there's speculations. Nobody knows exactly what he did, when he did it. He mentions these people. Now we go to verses 21 and 22 of 2 Timothy 4. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. 
That's interesting. Paul mentions these people. Nobody knows who they are. None of these believers are listed in the verse are known, according to Ellison. But Paul says, all have deserted me. Well, he's got some people with him. All the brothers, that means all the brothers of the church of Rome. I guess what he meant, he meant when he said all have deserted me, he meant all of his fellow apostolic workers. These might have just been ordinary brothers. And Claudia sounds like a woman. That might have just been friends or people bringing them stuff in jail, but they're not really apostles, co-apostles. Paul says, do your best, Timothy, to come to me before winter. If Timothy had waited until after winter, Paul would be almost almost alone, cold and with eye problems, as Ellison says. Verse 22, where Paul says, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you, is most probably written in his own hand to show genuineness, as Paul always did. Now, when Paul says, the Lord be with your spirit, that almost sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? We don't ever talk like that. We say the Lord be with you, but not the Lord be with your spirit. Paul is a spiritual guy. He knows that the Spirit is how we commune with Christ. And so he's saying, let the Lord be with your spirit. Do, 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 do. It almost sounds mystical, doesn't it? The Lord be with your spirit. The Lord be in union with your spirit. You're one with him and he's one with you, by golly. Grace be with you. That's in the plural in the Greek. Paul meant his letter to be read to the house churches near Ephesus, as Ellison says. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we are finished with the letter of 2 Timothy. In our next audio, we will take up the third pastoral epistle, Paul's letter to Titus. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 